he, he leaps on him and gets him in a full Nelson. <laughs> he's a, there's this brilliant line where he says, I landed on him like a goddamn panther. <laughs> strad latter returns. It's the return of the uh, the ego. Return of the Strad. <laughs> strad, yes, we've got Strad. Return of Strad. Return of They'll come to me and they'll say, fancy a pint? And I'll look down and answer, no. (laughs) Hello and welcome to part one of Shark Liver Oil's look at The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. So this is a a new book for us after we've been through the... uh, We've picked our way through the minefield that is uh, manners in the uh, Pride and Prejudice world. We're now, uh, we're basically moving from one character who's living in a world full of manners to another character who I don't think has any manners at all. (laughs) (laughs) So it's time for a contrast. Uh, Dave, you suggested this book. Uh, Just explain to us why, seeing as the last last time we spoke, you said you didn't really like it very much. Well, I suggested it because it's acknowledged as a classic as is Pride and Prejudice, but it, as you say, it couldn't really be more different from Pride and Prejudice. It's from this era of kind of of, uh, of writing, which was, you know, where people were kind of trying to write in the way that people actually spoke instead of quite a mannered, grammatically correct way and using lots of kind of idioms and stuff. And, um, and while it's a classic, it's supposed to be the book that kind of um, invented the idea of the teenager or put the idea of the teenager into literature. Um, all of that is why people think it's a great book. Personally, uh, I suggested it because, um, I, I don't know, I'm a glutton for punishment. or uh, <laughs> I feel like I, I read this when I was 18, 17, and um, I didn't like it very much. So I'm kind of, it's, it's, I'm giving it a second chance. Okay, right. Well, it's a, so it was written in uh, the 1950s, 1951. So the turn of the 1950s. And as you say, yeah, it's a novel about, if you're going to sum it up in sort of a couple of words, it's teenage rebellion, really. And uh, so if you're just coming to Shark Live Roll for the first time, quick rundown of who we are and what we do. Uh, We actually take a book every, pretty much once a month, we get a new book we split it down into a few parts, and then each week we look at each part of the book. So, sort of, we follow, we 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 take you along through the book every step of the way. So, our first part on the catcher in the rye, we're going to be reading up until chapter twelve. So, discussing that sort of section of the book. So, if you want to read that first before you listen to any more, go ahead and do it. Um, if you've already done it, then let's get started. <laughs> Dave, Man. catcher in the rye. Chapter one. Catcher in the Rye. Yes, the Catcher in the Rye. Let's start off with, as we always do, chapter one, and we meet the main character. This is all told through. It's almost as if he's written a a novel length letter to you, isn't it, the reader? And it's this yeah. guy called Holden Caulfield. Uh, he's a teenager, sixteen, seventeen, seventeen, going on eighteen, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, the, the writing style. The first thing that strikes me with the writing style, as as you said, it's uh, it's very very conversational and slack, and it's it's funny because as you you know, we've just done Pride and Prejudice. This is also seen as a classic, and they couldn't be more different in terms of style, could they? 
That's true. Although it, this this kind of gave me a little bit of a, a, a crisis about whether or not because I just read Pride and Prejudice and I was like, oh, clearly that's how people spoke. But I can't begin to believe that this is how people actually spoke in the 1950s. <laughs> so 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 reading this, I was like, oh man, was there just a lot more sort of effing and blinding in the uh, in the the Pride and Prejudice real Pride and Prejudice world that Jane Austen just didn't write down? It it, it twisted my melon, man. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose he is a he is a teenage boy. That you do tend to use a lot of uh, blue language when you're that age. Yeah, and uh, well, and he doesn't though. Everything's sort of crummy, spelt properly with a B. By the way, really enjoy that crummy. Yeah, yeah, crummy. Um, crummy or phony or I mean, you know, they like they'll go as far as saying "damn" or "son of a bitch," hmm. but like they, there's not a single there's not a single fuck in this chapter. Mm, this is true, and I find I find that unrealistic, given how kind of elbowy he's trying to make the rest of the prose. So, mm. I, doubtless, when this came out, it was like, oh wow, he's talking very realistically here. But you know, fifty years of intervening experience of reading about teenagers but now makes this incredibly unrealistic to me. But mm. maybe, maybe back then you could be a real damn all rebel and still watch your language. Maybe you could do that, or maybe sort of. The, the standards were so different that language was like things like damn it was really really bad because there's a, this bit later on isn't there at the end of the bit that we're talking about today where mm. um, this girl who's dancing with him tells him off a couple of times for swearing and yeah. he's using those kind of words isn't he yeah yeah that's very true and I mean I don't know maybe everybody was but I mean this is the era in which like uh, there was a code in Hollywood that said you weren't allowed to show like people of different races having like being in any kind of romantic relationship because mm. it was inappropriate, you know. So I, have, I I sense that it's more kind of censorship and a censorious society than it is, you know, somebody in Holden's position would really have tempered his language that much, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so so this guy he is currently attending uh, Pensy Prep. Which is a, an exclusive, it's some kind of expensive exclusive school uh, near New York, uh, all boys school. Uh, he runs the fencing team, so it's not exactly a typical comprehensive. And- <laughs> <laughs> did you did your did your school not have a fencing team, Matt? Ours had three of them. Honestly, we had that and a dressage uh, area out the back. Honestly, yeah. we did. Yeah, um, of the car park, mind, but sorry. yeah. Yeah, so so we meet Holden when he's he's every, every all everybody at the school seems to be at this football match, um, apart from him and a couple of other people, and he's standing alone on this hill just watching the match, um, and we find out just sort of composing a goodbye in his own head to the school because he's being kicked out because his academic results are so poor. He's basically not, not done any work for so long that they've given up and they're going to kick him out. And I quite liked the uh, the the reason he gives for that. He says that the school's got a really good academic rating and that's why they're kicking him out. <laughs> because <laughs> basically, if you're not going to get good grades, they don't let you graduate, so it doesn't affect <laughs> affect the rating, which is hey, brilliant. The, the more things change, mate. Eh? Yeah, well... Yeah... And uh, what did you make of him as, as sort of a first impression of this character? Um, he's weirdly spiky. Like, he kind of... He, he starts out kind of 
I mean, so we've talked about the the use of slang, and I find it I find it quite kind of weirdly unrealistic. You know, kind of says as hell and and all and everything kills him for some reason. Hmm. You know, and it takes me quite a while to work out what exactly in that sentence he means by it kills me because he sometimes means it's funny and sometimes means it's awful. Hmm. Um, but in this first little passage, it's often it's both, isn't it? Yeah, I guess, but I, that feels like you know. You're not. At, I mean, you could say that this is realistic to this kind of character, but if it is, it's the kind of it's, you know, it's it's this kind of surly, uncommunicativeness, hmm. which which I struggle to connect with a bit. But the other thing is, it's really weird. Like he's he's really kind of dismissive of the whole Pensy prep kind of scene. Hmm. But then there's other points. Then when he actually says that he's when he tells us that he's the um, uh, he's the manager of the fencing team. He says it's a very big deal, hmm. and and he, I, I don't know. Like he seems to be in love with this world and hating this world at the same time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't really. I, it's certainly not a book that's written in a way to make you warm to the character straight away. Because mm-hmm. I'm going in there looking for what's this guy about? You know, what does he care about? What is he? And he just. It, it seems to me like he draws a very flippant kind of cold circle around himself and places the reader on the outside of it that's how i felt about it i was like i why should i give a shit about you kid and he he just he gives me no reason in this first bit anyway i'm surprised that you think he places the reader on the outside of it because i'm i agree with you that he does have this very he creates this cold circle around himself and there's, there's this complexity in how he's a he's a part of he's a product of how he's been brought up but he's also straining against it and trying to rebel against various aspects that he thinks is isn't really worth yeah. caring about um but i didn't get a sense of him being condescending to the reader i don't think he's condescending to the reader i just think he doesn't give a shit about communicating with the reader you know he goes off on these long kind of like in this first passage again, when he describes the way everybody stands around watching this football game, there's a lot of descriptive nonsense in there, which doesn't really tell me anything about him and just seems to be about how he's noticed everything and how it's really important that he's noticed everything. And, mm. and that, like, I don't, I don't have a reason to care about that as a reader. And it's not telling me anything about his character. It's almost like he's saying, Hey, look over there, all that spurious detail. So I don't have to tell you anything about myself. Mm. And I know, I mean, I, as you can tell, Having said that I was giving this book a second crack of the whip, didn't take long into it before I kind of got to this place where I was a bit like, who the fuck are you, kid, and why should I care? Mm. Um, but um, but I really I really did want to see more in it than I saw when I was younger. Mm. Um, and, and so I was a little bit, I was a little bit sort of disappointed by this opening segment, to be honest with you. I just, I didn't, I didn't understand why I should care. Okay, well, um, well, you, you've got something in common with with Holden then, because he feels <laughs> very much that way about his school, and uh, and he he's off to visit a guy called Mister Spencer, who we meet in chapter two. Now, uh, old Spencer, as he's known, um, I, I get the feeling that they they both had a kind, they kind of shared a uh, rather exasperated and bemused uh, liking of each other. These two characters. Um, I think Holden quite likes him, but also is a little repulsed by him as well. And I'd probably say the same is goes the other way. Yeah, um, I definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. So this, I mean, he, he meets so this old guy's ba- this teacher. He thinks he's his history teacher has called him round as this kind of one last shot at keeping him in school. And 
he goes right into his house. This this teacher's wearing a bathrobe, which he says he was probably born in. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a fairly good line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, he sits him down and has this big talk about, you know, life's a game and you've got to play by the rules yeah. and all this, which is fairly on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. But I thought I thought this was quite good insofar as it's unusual because this is the in a in a cliched growing up schoolboy story. This is the thing that happens two thirds of the way through to turn the tear away yeah, character yeah. round yeah, and he comes yeah. good, yeah. and it's placed right at the start of the book and it's almost uh, you know shows that it, this isn't this is going to be a bit different and and this isn't going to make any kind of difference at all. Yeah, you can't. One thing you can't throw at the catcher in the rise that it's got a conventional narrative structure. Mm. I mean, it's nowhere near as unconventional as things that have come since. But this is 1951, so the mm. idea of having the moment that's supposed to be the big epiphany and having it not happen—that's pretty good, um, and 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 pretty arresting, I think. But mm. you know, you're talking there about cliches, though, and I think maybe that's one of the problems that we have when we come to this: is that this is written in 1951, and I don't think it's possible really to read stuff like this without thinking about the whole like incredibly well-documented 60s and 70s counterculture thing where people literally did just drop out, smoke weed, and, and forget their own names. You know mm. what I mean? Like, where people genuinely structurally questioned all of the things that they've been brought up to do, none of which Holden Caulfield really does here. He just kind of sulks. He kind of goes, oh, this is rubbish. Fuck the lot of you. I'm going to New York. You know, <laughs> and, um, and, and that may have been realistic to the time. That may even have looked like... Fuck, you know, it, it may even have looked like, you know, that, that Malcolm McDowell film, If, or, you know, where he ends up on top of his school with a sniper rifle. And, you know, it may even have looked that shocking at the time. But to me, I'm just like, yeah, but where's the... What? This is the most lame rebellion I've ever heard in my entire life. He goes to talk to his history teacher, gets a bit bored because the fella can't chuck a magazine at his own bed, and leaves again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that... that um weakness was kind of part of what drives Holden here though the fact that this is the, supposed to be the character which is um, reaching out to him and, and the adult figure that he can, he can look up to and he's almost um, I think he's shocked him and a little frightened just at how sad the guy appears yeah, in terms of yeah. old age you know and, and he's, he's almost thinking is this the kind of person I'm supposed to be respecting you know because this is the kind of guy who isn't the crummy, you know, suck up who's uh, yeah, who's yeah. glad handing all the rich parents and stuff. He's this the genuine guy, and he also looks a bit sad. So, you know, if yeah. he's going to build a better world and come up with his better philosophy, he's not really got anything to draw on, has he? Well, that is a very, very excellent point. Yeah, and I can definitely see why this would lead him to kind of contemptuous despair. Um, but one of my problems with this is that it doesn't seem like he had anything else in him than contemptuous despair beforehand, you know. Mm. But yeah, anyway. Th- this there's this essay which is <laughs> which is uh, his teacher gets out and shows him to show how little he's been applying himself, and uh, it's this essay on the Egyptians. He's written about three lines, and then just gives <laughs> up and says to me, it, it doesn't, doesn't write anymore. And then at the bottom, he writes this little note to the teacher saying, don't feel bad, but I can't be bothered writing anymore. Um, <laughs> it's not your fault. And he expects the teacher to be, he says, I wrote that to make him feel better. And he feels it's a bit of a, a bit of this as crummy move to, to make me feel bad over it and throw it back in my face. <laughs> and I was reading this thinking, almost thinking, is there something 
psychologically wrong with him because it's almost autistic isn't it that yeah yeah well i was trying to be nice to you but like but yeah so how how kind of divorced from the experience of how to be nice to other human beings must you become i suppose in a school like this Hmm. if you reckon writing a superficially sarcastic footnote to your history teacher on the bottom of the exam that he wrote that you couldn't be asked to complete (laughs) constitutes your attempt at human warmth you know, like, I, and maybe, and maybe that is a good point because we have quite a lot in this section about you know his life in the school, mm. and and you know he's, he's clearly surrounded by a bunch of you know barely literate fuck knuckles who are all about to inherit the world, mm. um, and so maybe that maybe that is a good critique of it, yeah. Uh, we find out more about this the school in chapter three when he's talking about this. He says that he, for start, he says he's a great liar, which sets things up for later because he does constantly. He's almost a a great compulsive liar, isn't he? You find yeah. him later in the book. He he just comes up with wild lies. Just seems because he just, <laughs> he just can. can't help himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he also talks about this guy who um, came to the school recently called Ossenberger, who gave the school a lot of money. And and they named a wing of it after him, and uh, <laughs> and he thinks that's a you get the impression he thinks that's a pretty shoddy way of the world working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this guy's a he's not an impressive bloke really for any other reason other than he's rich and he's given the school some money. And there's this yeah. great bit where uh, he's giving this long rambling speech to the school. And one of the one of the pupils farts, and he says, "Damn near blew the roof off." <laughs> and it's that weird sort of silent anonymous protest, isn't it? Which yeah. is it seems like the only way that um, people who don't like the way things are going in, in this book in, in this world can can protest and blow off steam with these little little sort of small acts of rebellion until Holden does a, a larger one. Yeah, well, that's true, I suppose. Although there's a bit of me that's like, yeah, but objectively... So I, I'm thinking about this, what you were thinking about, about Pride and Prejudice. I'm like, yeah, but objectively, you're so incredibly privileged. There's any number of things that you could do with a background like yours to question mm. that system more than farting in front of a visiting speaker. You know, <laughs> so I was I was a bit like, really, is that supposed to be... Because that just seems kind of quite, quite pointless to me. The... The circumstance in which it wouldn't seem pointless to me is like I think we've all if we're if we're lucky we all have stories like that from our from our high school years you know where like mm. you get together with your mates from high school and you tell these stories about when somebody did something particularly stupid or particularly hilarious you know yeah. and and you all end up laughing your ass off about it and it's a shared memory and it's pleasant and and he clearly doesn't have anybody that he's going to share that memory with, so he's kind of sharing it with you. So even that moment, which is supposed to be really funny, was kind of really cold to me. It was really sad. Hmm. Yeah, um, I suppose it's it is quite a juvenile sense, like way to re- rebel. But then, yeah, the, the the these guys are teenagers, aren't they? And that's that is you're right. That's what happens. Yeah, when but, you, but when I mean, but later age. in this section, he's fronting up, walking into you know, he goes into nightclubs and dances all these dances. I had no idea I'd dance when I was seventeen. Do you know what I mean? Like he's <laughs> he's clearly you know he's kind of wandering. He goes into New York and books himself into a hotel. Age seventeen, if you'd have presented me with a hotel and a platinum credit card, I would have been like, I don't really know what to do here. Do you, know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, like, I just wouldn't have known how to act or what to do. Whereas he just hey, kind of glides into it on the back of gilded privilege. <laughs> and you're telling me that somebody who knows how to do that 
and wanders around New York at four in the morning and kind of is a man of the world, doesn't know how to make a more meaningful protest than laughing at somebody else breaking wind. All I'm going to say, I don't think there's much to check in. If, if Kevin McAllister, age nine, can check into a hotel by himself, <laughs> No, but that's a function of, I'm seriously, that's a function of what you've experienced. I almost yeah. never stayed in hotels before I was about, I don't know, 18 or whatever. Like, you know, because they were too expensive. So mm. I just had no idea. Um, whereas, you know, so clearly I'm not from nearly as privileged a background as this guy here, and fair enough. But, mm. um, but do you know what I like? So there's, there, there's a real disconnect here between the juvenile bits and the superficially grown up bits and the, the incredibly mm. smooth bits and the incredibly awkward bits. But I, I mean, yeah. all of, all of that said, perhaps that's what adolescence is. You know, perhaps that's a more accurate image of being 17 than I'm really comfortable reading. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Perhaps. maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe sometime you, you, at the same time, really quite mature in some ways and spectacularly childish and immature in, in others, all yeah. wrapped up in this one, like, hormonal package of <laughs> teen <true>. angst. <laughs> Desperately trying to get somebody's butt rum in your Coke. <laughs> yeah, which we will come on to. Which we will come on uh, to. <clears throat> We're, um,. <clears throat> Oh, there's something he met, he says here about great books that he's enjoyed. And he says that a great book makes you want, wish that you knew the author and you could have a drink with him or her. Uh, mm. What do you think about that as an idea as to as to sort of a great book has to make that kind of impression on you? Ooh, I definitely go along with that. I mean, there's books which I think are really fantastic whose authors I'd love to have a drink with, largely off the back of those books. And somebody said mm. when we were doing the reviews of Pride and Prejudice last time, didn't they? You know, I, I wish Jane Austen was still alive. And you do mm. get that sense when, you, when you're in the presence of a really kind of sparkling mind. You're like, shit, I wish I could have a beer with you. That would just be fantastic, you know? Mm. Um, uh, and there's one or two authors who make you feel like you're experiencing that, and that's why you love their books. Like, I would argue Ian Banks does that very well. Um, but um, but this particular book, it felt a little bit needy. Like it almost felt like it was it was probably being written by a seventeen year old. And this is J D. Salinger going, "Please think that I'm cool enough to have a drink with." <laughs> you know? Okay. Uh, the we're introduced to one of the next characters. The one of the characters, few characters, who gets quite a lot of lines um, and sticks around for a while. Is called Ackley. And he's kind of, he's kind of Holden's roommate, but not. He doesn't sleep in the same room. They sleep in sort of the room next door, but it's only uh, separated by this shower curtain. That's a, that's a and, slightly weird accommodation setup, isn't it? Particularly for the children of the yeah. extremely wealthy. We'll put them <laughs> yeah. in shared rooms, separated from other shared rooms with shower curtains, because yeah. because I don't know why. Because walls are for suckers. We spend your money on books, not walls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like most other um, characters in the book who Holden actually likes, it's a bit of a complicated feelings towards them, isn't it? Because he, he likes Ackley, you feel, but he also really dislikes certain aspects of his character. Yeah, He finds him quite boring. And um, he, when Ackley comes into the room, he says, Hi. And uh, Holden keeps reading his book, and he says, "If you look up from your book, you're a goner," because he, he <laughs> talks to you for ages. Um, <laughs> he also yeah. says that he also says that Ackley's the kind of guy who picks up your personal stuff. Um, 
like absent-mindedly and yes. I thought this was really funny because that's the, that is something that I do <laughs> I'm always picking up other people's things <laughs> without <laughs> thinking about it and it's re- I, I know it's really rude but I can't help doing it <laughs> <laughs> well I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't really know how to bring it up Matt we've known each other for so long but Thank, now you've brought it up, I think we should have a talk when we're not recording. No, um, uh, yeah, and I think that is one of the strengths. Like I was saying before, where he's standing on the hilltop and, and he's describing in, in quite kind of throwaway yet minute detail what's going on beneath. Um, it's clear that to Holden Coalfield, these little details are very significant and are kind of part of how he's trying to understand the world. Like he's almost like he's trying to decode the world. And so he notices all of these little things. And, um, and I think I, to be honest with you, I think that's a little bit of JD Salinger putting himself in there. Cause I think that's, there are a lot of writers who say that's the essence of being a writer is noticing things and writing them down. Um, mm. So, um, so I, I thought that was a nice little piece of kind of character detail and, um, and Holden Caulfield is an aspire well, could be a writer. Seems to be the only thing he's talented at is writing. So, mm. um, so I kind of I buy that as a little as a little kind of character piece. Um, and uh, yeah, just just call me uh, call me Caulfield to your Ackley is what I'm saying. I suppose. <laughs> oh, great! Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you phony son of a bitch! Why I order? <laughs> um, and also, we also meet uh, Strad. Is it Stradlatter or? Str- Stradlater. I couldn't couldn't begin to tell you. Well, we're going to go for Stradlater. Apologies if that's not the right pronunciation, but I've never met one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Could you possibly sounded more dismissive there? Never met one of these Stradlaters. Twats. (laughs) Yeah. Our first introduction to this guy is he he seems to be confident, rich, and good in bed. He's everything. He's like Mr. Darcy. Uh, but of course, later on, we find the horrible truth about what he's actually like. Uh, in chapter four, it's quite clear that this guy's pretty well in love with himself, isn't he? I think Holden might actually say it about Stradletter. Yeah. He what, what did you himself. make of What did you make of his roommates? These two guys. Um, well, I mean, so you're exploring the kind of environment of the school. We've heard a lot of stuff about how he really dislikes the school, and so. You you know you you this is this is how JD Salinger is choosing to show what that actual environment is like for Holden, mm. um, and you've got one guy who's quite kind of maladroit and a bit of a wanker, and you've got one guy who's incredibly smooth and a lot of a wanker, and then there's Goldfield who is as you say extremely maladroit relationally and quite a lot of a wanker. So you know there's there's um there's kind of there's a continuum of how smooth you are, but everybody's a wanker, basically. I think is what we're supposed to get from this. Hmm. Um, and and you know the the hyper privileged, very handsome posh boy is a well established trope for a good reason. You know, yeah. so there's one or two people that I know who I'm like, kind of, oh yeah, yeah, Stradlatter, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't difficult yeah. to put a face on that character, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, he is a bit of a sort of a born to rule kind of guy isn't he yeah and, he's um, Boris Johnson but better looking basically is what we're talking about here <laughs> I like how he he um he swans in as well and just sort of says to Holden look you do do this English essay for me will you because uh you know it needs to do it and he just immediately expects that that's got to be fine he's not yeah. even 
please, it's just just do it, will you? Yeah, but Caulfield doesn't say a damn thing. I'm like, <clears throat> you, who spend your entire internal life standing on top of hills and lobbing curses from long distance like mortar shells made out of surly wankerishness at your surroundings. The first somebody comes in and makes an extremely unreasonable demand of you, and you just sort of smile and nod, mess around with your hat a little bit, and then just go, yeah, all right. Like, you useless twat. Honestly, this is the chance for the fight that you've been telling us for 20 pages now that you've been wanting to have, and you don't bother having it. Great, I think I'll stick with you and see what else you make out of your journey. <laughs> I think that's realistic, though. I think a lot of teenagers are like that. They're all, you're all bubbling angst and everything's crap, and then when some conflict comes in, especially if it's this kind of guy, you know, most popular kid in school kind of guy, I used to do something. How many teenagers do the glorious standing up for yourself and <laughs> having a massive I, I'm not I think I think if he had done that it'd have been a very different type of book and also yeah. I think it'd be a lot weaker it's a bit it's a bit cliched isn't it and a little unrealistic well yeah but but I and I accept all of that and fair enough but do you see what I mean though about like that not happening just makes me go I'm still waiting for a reason to think that you're a character I want to hang around you know for the same reason as you know, if, if there was somebody having a conversation with me and all they spoke about was how shit life was and then and and just carried on talking about it and not doing anything about it, you know, you'd be like, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what my point of engagement is supposed to be in your life, you know? Mm. Well, I also think he, he isn't sort of a, a simpering yes man to Stradlatter either. He... um. You know, there is he is a quite he is quite prickly all the way through, and it, it builds to a head later on. But yeah. I mean, there's this there's this bit where he he start he stands in the guy's light, which he got angry at Ackley for doing before, and then won't move out of the way when he asks him to. And then he's Holden's almost got ADHD because he can't he can't help but start <laughs> yeah. doing stuff when he gets bored. Mm. So he he does the like he pulls the hat down over his eyes and pretends he's blind for a bit just to wind him up. <laughs> and then he starts doing a tap dance on the floor behind him. <laughs> and then in the end, he he leaps on him and gets him in a full Nelson. <laughs> he says, There's this brilliant line where he says, "I landed on him like a goddamn panther." <laughs> And yeah. I, I, I thought I thought that that kind of saved him a little bit in that he, he isn't he isn't this pathetic guy who's just saying oh yes sir no sir yeah, he, yeah, yeah, but yeah. He, he has got this um, yeah well he's also got this kind of resilience which is which is there as well and it it's, it all builds up in this weird kind of semi playful semi serious relationship that he's got with this guy who you get the feeling that do they like each other probably not and this is how these kind of teenage uh, uh, these teenage problems manifest themselves, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and and that's true. And you're right; it is it is more nuanced than I'm letting it be. Um, and but the thing is that the like you say the line, "I fell on him like a goddamn panther," and I, that's really funny. That is some funny shit. But in Holden Caulfield's voice, I'm just like. I just hear him go, I fell on him like a goddamn panther. And then the next sentence but one is about how he's, I don't know, I'm really bored or to tell you the truth, I'm some other deeply contradictory statement about myself or, you know, and because Holden Caulfield, I suppose, is such a liar, I have, I have a disconnect from that, the kind of, the, the kind of depth of that experience, I suppose. Hmm. Hmm. 
that's quite interesting because I I had a sense of him being that these weird two sides to him in that he's he's yeah he's a bit sick of the world and you know can't be bothered with a lot of it and at the same time he's almost he's also this bundle of energy that just wants to do things all the time um and you can see it through these different things that he's just doing when he's just waiting around he can't sit still physically he can't sit yeah. still <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and and it, you you feel that and i i thought that was a really nice uh illustration of being that age where some things you think you you you, sw- you have these mood swings from being everything's crap i hate everything i can't be bothered and then oh i just want to do something i'm so <laughs> energetic i want to get something done <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and i i i wouldn't say i i disliked or liked I, I didn't feel a great way one way or the other to liking or disliking the character but i was interested in him and i thought he's I'm interested to see where it goes and what happens to him and uh and mm. where he ends up. Yeah, I mean I'm 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 definitely along for the ride here. Um you know, like I'm kind of I am quite intrigued as to because the thing is that JD Sam is supposed to be an absolute genius and this is supposed to be one of the masterpieces of 20th century literature. So I'm going to assume that if you spend a lot of pages setting up a character who's kind of weirdly inaccessible, um kind of cold and slippery and not terribly empathetic that you're doing that for a reason and that you're going to use that to kind of illuminate something or you're going to you know that there's going to be something interesting that happens as a result of this character being this way so i'm definitely still along for the ride i just Mm. you know like you know taken on the chunk that we've done so far i am like i don't like you and i don't know why i should but you know Mm. maybe you're not supposed to like a character maybe that maybe that's naive of me for wanting to you know, have a reason to care about the character that I'm reading about. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's this Stradlatter's going out on a date with this girl called Jane Gallagher, and it turns out that Holden knows her, and he's obviously, I think it's obvious as we go on that um, he's really sweet on it. And is there's this bit excellent 1950s slang use there? But do you like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was kind enjoying of that. Just, just, just slip that in there. He's a bit sweet yeah. on it. And he's 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 up there, and Stradlight is like, yeah, well, she's downstairs. Why do you go and say hello? And he's like, yeah, I'll go and say hello. No, I'm not going to go and say hello. I, I, I've not, yeah, I think we're going to go and say, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and say hello. No, you know what? I'm not. Gonna, and he never he doesn't in the end. And again, that's quite nice. It's a typical teenager, and um, he's he's all, you know, one part, part bravado, two part shy. And uh, I thought it was good. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. And again, you know, I, maybe this is accurate teenage behaviour, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably why I liked I, I liked reading about him. And I suppose if I have to pick one or the other, I did, I did like him. And it's because he reminds me of a teenager, of being a teenager. <laughs> and it's quite nice to get a little window back into that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm not wild about that window, I suppose. I'm just like, yeah, all right, that's what it was like. Thank fuck for growing up. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, okay, chapter five, moving on. Uh, it's snowing. They have a snowball fight. <laughs> <laughs> I love, th- these these just little bits of being a child just pop up every now and then, don't they? In yeah. amongst all the uh, adult world that they're ex- beginning to explore. Hmm. Um they go to the cinema. I think it's quite nice this where they go to the cinema, uh, Holden and this other guy, another one of the guys from school, and Holden takes Ackley along. He doesn't have to. 
and it's obvious that the other guy isn't that mad keen on it. Mm. But uh, Hudden just kind of wants to get the guy at the at the house who knows he might enjoy it. I just thought that was quite nice to have him do something that isn't just about himself because it. Yeah. You're right in saying a lot of it's very self-centred, isn't it, and quite narcissistic, but he does have these flashes as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. Uh, he Later on, Holden sits down to write this report uh, the, for Stradletter, and he writes it about uh, Ali, this guy called, uh, called Ali, who's one of Holden's brothers who's died, mm. um, and... You get a sense of he, they were quite close. Yeah. Uh, he writes about this baseball mitt that Ali had. He, he says how much he used to admire Ali and how he was so bright. And um, yeah. he wrote all these. I, I love this little character thing where he wrote all these poems on his on his mitt, so that when he was standing in the outfield playing baseball, he had something to read. And he says he says quite offhandedly that yeah, when he died, he um, Holden smashed all the windows in the garage. Yeah. And yeah, again, it's this. It's this. He has difficulty just showing emotions. To me, yeah, and this yeah. is one of the ways he does it. That's very true. And and but he, and because he has difficulty showing emotions, I think that comes through in his tone of voice, right? So mm. I was really surprised when when the kind of narrative went in this direction, um, because it's because I, I was I was because he maintained the same kind of bored tone of voice. He doesn't talk mm. about it as though it was a big deal. You know, there's still no emotion invested in it for him. And, mm. um, you know, he smashed all the things and he can't properly make a fist, but I'm not going to be a heart surgeon, so who cares? Um, and, and and so I was like, I'll tell you what it was like, actually. I once saw a piece of student theatre, which where the, the it was a comedy, but people writing it decided that they needed a kind of a big, dark moment about two-thirds of the way through. So they had one mm. of the characters, just really apropos of nothing, declare that she had cancer. And it didn't really have any effect on the plot of the play, and it didn't really have any effect on the outcome or how the rest of the characters acted. It was kind of there, just floating there, like a, you know, a moment where the entire room just went, ugh. And then mm. move past it, and this felt like that. To be honest, I was a bit like, uh, "What? You know, I mean, I mean, that's awful. Your your brother died. Are we going to spend a little bit of time with that and the impact it might have had on your character? No, no, no. We're just going to move on to another thing about how you're telling me about how you're such a terrific ex. You know. Mm. Um. I, so I felt a bit. <clears throat> I was a bit kind of. Oh, is that's where you're going? Oh no, that's not where you're going. That's just just purposeless. Oh. Mm. So I was a bit, I was well, a bit pissed off by that. Well, I suppose that that's who he is, though, isn't it? And the the thing is, his whole style of writing and his whole um, sort of thoughts, as well, like <clears throat> conscious thought, is is this, yeah, really matter of fact, nothing's that important kind of attitude. But that's kind of a, I feel it. That's a shield he uses to protect himself. Mm. And I find it interesting that every so often you get these glimpses through it and there's there's little moments of honesty with him. Yeah. And I think a lot of what he says is a massive load of bravado in front. Yeah. And the 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 thing I find fascinating about the book is how every so often the mask slips a bit and you see what he's really like. Yeah. And it's, it's, you feel that actually what he's really like is actually a much warmer character than than what he's allowing to be shown. Yeah. And yeah. you get a similar thing, like we said, with when he was thinking about going down to see Jane mm-hmm. and the, oh, I'm going to go down and see her, yeah, you know, 
and all this stuff about how confident he is about it is the the sort of the shield and the mask and the oh I'm a bit too scared and shy to go down and see her is the real him just seeping through before he shuts it off again. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And again, there's an argument that that's a very accurate image of, of adolescence, isn't it? Um, mm. And <clears throat> hang on a sec, sorry, there was something else. Um, oh, yeah. A thought that occurs to me, where we're particularly talking about that scene, is that on the one hand, I was a bit pissed because it didn't take me where I was expecting to go. But maybe that, may, may, you know, you could make a good argument. That's just a sign of how how kind of lazy I'm used to my plots being, you know? Mm. Like, I'm used to, somebody's younger brother died, that's going to be a moment of extreme emotion, and it's going to seriously inform, or perhaps in really cheap drama, explain away the plot dynamics and actions of this character who's fundamentally a two-dimensional cipher. And maybe Salinger's drawing something deeper than that. Maybe the reason I'm pissed off is that he's not bothering to give me all of the kind of, you know, crunchy sugar loops crap plot and cheap characterization that I've become very used to but mm -hmm. so I, maybe this maybe this is Salinger being a genius and I've just I've just acquired a taste for crap but um <laughs> but you know we've read a lot of books so far which are also by fantastic authors whose plots were not crap and mm -hmm. which I found a hell of a lot more satisfying than this but okay. I'm I'm now actually as we get through as we get into this is why I like doing it with you because now as we get into it I'm realising, you know, maybe I'm not giving this the fair crack of the whip that it deserves. Well, we'll we'll decide later on, I suppose. <laughs> the, we'll see. Um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of book to go. <laughs> there's a lot of book to defend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> chapter six and uh, Stradlatter returns. It's the return of the uh, the Re ego. Return of uh, the Strad. <laughs> Strad, yes, we've got Strad. Return of Strad. Return of Strad. That's it. So the the Strad comes back and um, <laughs> he doesn't like Holden's essay that he's done for him. Uh, not exactly a master of diplomacy. This uh, diplomacy of the Strad. Uh, he just says, "Oh, this is crap. You were supposed to write about a door or something. You've written about a baseball glove." <laughs> and he doesn't he doesn't seem to realise that they could be kind of one of the same thing in this context. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, Holden's like, right, you don't like it, fine. And he just rips it up in front of him. And I was like, right on. <laughs> yeah, I, th right. At that moment, I was I was bang alongside him because I, in my day job, I work as a copywriter, and there are moments where you where you work with people who have a very very clear idea of what the work needs to be. You know better than them, but you're not allowed to say that. So you just end up being like, all right, okay, fine. I will write the bad thing you've just asked me to write. That's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's no sense of uh, Holden. When we said before this relationship between the two, is he is he a bit of a yes man? There's no way Holden's going to do a rewrite, is there? <laughs> That's it, true. It, that it, is true. In this context, I suppose I hate Holden because uh, I'm ashamed by his outgoing and forceful personality, as opposed to my <laughs> my quizzling yes man nature. He's <laughs> <laughs> he's um. The Strad says that he spent the evening in the car with Jane, giving the impression that they've had sex, and Holden punches him in the face, uh, and 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 not not just that he sort of he keeps calling him a moron because he knows he hates it just yeah. to wind him up because yeah. he, he sort of he, he's so angry, isn't he? At, yeah. at the Strad here, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, what well, an asshole! Again, yeah, I, I mean. I mean, it's funny. It's quite a. It is quite a funny moment, and I suppose I should be seeing the 
link between the emotions and the actions here. But there's a bit of me that's still like, I don't know, when you were a teenager, was this, was there this little ice-cold core just commentating on everything and kind of dispassionately narrating it for you? Because it wasn't for me. If I ever punched somebody in the face when I was a teenager, it's because it was really angry. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't anything to, it, you know, it wasn't being narrated in this way. So, because it was, because he narrates it in quite a flat, I imagine him talking in quite a monotone. And so, I don't, I don't really feel the emotion in the moment. Mm-hmm. I know. Are you, am, am I? Are you different there? Do you, are you? Are you kind of feeling it there? Did you read that and straight off just go, "Whoa, he's angry there." Yeah, I did feel like he was. Yeah, he he just sort of. He, he I think he was. You felt. I I felt earlier on. There's this tension as soon as he finds out who the Strad is dating. Yeah, and um, and it just builds within him to to this point where he just <clears throat> sort of snaps because he's yeah he, he's. The whole uh, the, the one word I would use to describe to describe Holden is is kind of, is volatile within him. He's he's got these very volatile, as a typical teenager, really volatile emotions. And I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I, when I was a teenager, had this sort of front of being like having this cold appraisal of everything going on behind sort of what I was actually doing. But I I can I can remember a lot of friends or other people who I knew at school who you felt there was the person they were trying to be and trying to show that they were and the and and that was different from the person who they really were and they were just try- hmm. and part part of going through adolescence and being a teenager and growing up is bringing those two things together mm. and I think he's a slightly more extreme example of that mm, that's interesting yeah yeah, all right. I'll, I'll go with that, right? So this is this is the moment that um, he decides to leave, isn't it? I mean, in chapter seven, uh, he 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 leaves the room and goes into Ackley's bedroom and sort of lies down on Ackley's roommate's bed, who we never meet, and kind of just sits and, and annoys Ackley for a while, just as something to do, <laughs> just for fun. And is yeah, just as a way of running away from what's happening, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we'll find out why he's so upset about the Strad um, <laughs> dating Jane, who he likes, and it's because he knows what this guy's like on a date, oh, and yeah. that he almost always gets what he wants. And well, let me put it this way: the guy doesn't appear to be a no means no kind of guy. Um, and yeah, and that 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 made me think <clears throat> that that made me like Holden a bit more. Think you know he's got a good reason here as well for hating this guy, especially if it's a uh, if it's somebody he cares about who's who's in the it's sort of firing line of this. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and uh, yeah, the book does kind of skip past the quite like reprehensible way that all boys talk about all girls. Um, mm. you know, and just kind of just kind of rolls on past it but at least Holden is not is the kind of guy to object to the guy to a guy like Stradlatter mm. yeah so this is the moment that sort of Holden decides you know I'm on my way out anyway I'm just going to leave now and by leave now he means leave at this very moment he packs his bags sells his typewriter <laughs> and leaves <laughs> and this is another thing about him he, he's just super impulsive isn't he he just oh, does yeah. things he decides and then bang he's gone he's doing it yeah I mean that was that's that's just 
absolutely amazing. He like mm. I love that he goes down the hall and wakes a guy up, and I just had such a wonderful time imagining <laughs> that conversation. <laughs> like um, yeah. <laughs> like boom boom boom. Oi, you big phony, you son of a bitch. I'm leaving. Do you want to buy my typewriter? He's <laughs> fucking one in the morning, you knobhead. Fuck off. You phony. I want to I wanna sell you my typewriter. It's worth $90. How much will you give me for it? Oh, f- fucking $20. Just fuck off. And then he just lobs it at me in the bed and leaves the room. <laughs> what the fuck? You get, you get the feeling that he paid him twenty quid just to go away. Didn't yeah, you? that's it, isn't it? And you know, again, rich school, so that's a bit that's more reasonable. Yeah, you can almost imagine him waking up the next morning, not really remembering that he'd done it, and just being like, "What the fuck have I got this on my bed? And where did my twenty dollar note go?" Uh, fucking Coalfields. I bet he's stolen it. That bastard. <laughs> Yeah, so so Holden leaves. He feels a bit bad about his uh, the fact his mum's bought him some new hockey skates, which he's never going to use. Uh, but beyond that, he he just he wanders out into the night. He catches a night train in chapter eight, and is the only person on the train apart from this woman who gets on, who turns out to be the mother of one of the children at the school. Uh, this this teenager called Ernest Morrows, and. Uh, he chats with with the mum, and he he quite like he quite it's he quite fancies her, doesn't he? Yeah, and um, there's definitely a stiffless mum situation happening here. Definitely, yeah, and he gets her enthralled by he says just talking about how great her son is. He says that mums just love just lap this kind of stuff up, <laughs> so he just makes all this stuff up about how great her son to the extent that he's. He says, yeah, we all tried to convince him to run for class president and he was too shy and retiring and modest not to. And this is a guy who, he turns out in real life, chases people down the corridor and whacks them with wet towels. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, and and again, you kind of, you've known people like that at school, haven't you? And you there's, there's always a kind of a mm. bit of your head where you're like, why are you such a knob and does nobody in your family know that you are such a knob? And you could just yeah. just believe it being a situation like this where his mother's like, oh, he's so shy. Is he? Yeah. He wasn't <laughs> fucking shy when he was setting things on fire last week. I think you may not have read your son with quite the accuracy you assume. Yeah. Although he, do, he does say, um, he does wonder, well, he says he thinks that most mothers, probably her included, do know what the sons are really like, and there's almost like a a story behind the story when they're talking to each other. Yeah, um, or a desperate desire to be told that that everything isn't as bad as you assume it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really that's that's really interesting because he he actually comes across as quite nice. This lie he tells because he says, "Yeah, um, you know, her her sons are a horrible and nasty piece of work, but at least she'll go home." With this, you know, thinking about this happy. story about how nice he is, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, which is interesting. Um, he progresses to telling taller and taller lies, almost as if he can't help himself, to the point where I think he says he's got a brain tumor, and that's why he's going home early. <laughs> now, <laughs> before he leaves. I do love these, and I am hoping we come across more of these in the course of the book, where like a sort of a, a spiral of lies that becomes so unsupportable that he ends up claiming to have gone to the moon last week or something. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd really love it if it got, like, absurdly and comedically out of hand. 
Yeah. You're actually a, a highly trained orangutan. Interesting, Mr. Caulfield. Interesting. And everybody else just believes him. Yeah, 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 definitely. Orangutan, yeah. Yeah. You get the feeling that he told a couple of lies once and, and it he worked was out shocked for him. to Yeah, he was shocked <laughs> to be believed and thought, bloody hell, people will really will believe anything. And he's thinking, I wonder how far I can push it. And every so often he just goes back to it and thinks, I wonder, I wonder what I could say here, how far I could go and still have the believe what I'm saying. <laughs> That's and out of out of that are are great careers in tabloid journalism. Born, <laughs> he gets to New York. Look, I I struggled a little bit uh, just placing where he lived in relation to his school in relation to New York. But it, I get the impression that he lives somewhere on the west side of New York. He goes to school just outside New York, and he's. I think he's going to a hotel on the east side. So it's all based in a very small area. Because yeah. when I first read this, I always imagined boarding, people going to boarding schools to be like really far away. Yeah. But obviously not. Well, really. uh, yeah. And that's an interesting little thing, isn't it? Whereas I imagine in the in the early 50s, you know, uh, New York wasn't nearly as big as it is now. So, mm. you know, perhaps the countryside was much closer to Manhattan than, than that. Yeah. I think actually the reason I assumed that is because the closest thing I've got to boarding school, like an experience of boarding school, is university. Oh and, right, and that and that is when you you go, you tend to go hours and hours away from your family for mm. the first time, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of I assumed what happened here, but it's not. But a boarding school just is a sort of a, an hour or two down the road, an hour or so down the road, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's not uncommon, um, really. Because I thought when he when he left and he was going home. The book would be a this long journey across America on his way back to. to oh, where he you lives. thought you were getting a road movie. Yeah, that would yeah. have been great, wouldn't it? It would have been quite good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean so like a 1951 version of like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or something, but instead of dropping all sorts of like hallucinogenics, he's just drinking heavily on a train. Yeah, <laughs> That'd be amazing. Or sort of a, a a wealthy teen angst retelling of. The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> <laughs> now that I would pay to read. The Grapes yeah. of Wrath featuring absolutely no poverty whatsoever and just somebody wandering <laughs> through America. <laughs> like, I'm fine, everybody else seems to be fucked, but I've got a credit card, so I'm all right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, Holden decides to stay. It's a hold up in a hotel for a couple of days. Uh, he's basically trying to enjoy the last couple of days of freedom before his mum and dad find out he's been expelled from school again and uh, this shit hits the farm. Yeah. Uh, he gets to the hotel and decides to make a phone call and then runs through the list of people he'd like to speak to and realises that, to be honest, well, most of them are with the parents, which would mean they'd find out. So he can't, for various reasons or another, he can't ring them. Yeah. And you get this a little bit of a sense of isolation again here. Yeah. This isn't... This isn't a guy running away from school with a couple of close mates or with a girl that he's fallen for and it's us against the world. It's just this guy on his own, isn't it? Looking for some kind of connection. Very much. And that would that was a that was a moment where I really felt it, where it was like he says, you know, I went into the went into the uh the telephone booth. Mm. I left my bags outside because I thought I was only gonna be quick. And then he goes through all the list of the people that he that he doesn't want to call and you're thinking all right, his bags haven't been nicked, so this isn't the New York City that I recognise. <laughs> um, but then but he goes through this list of people, and then he comes back out, and you realise, and he says, I was in there about 20 minutes. 
and you just imagine him sitting in a in a phone booth listing off those people in his brain and not calling any of them for 20 yeah. minutes like that's yeah. really really affecting that you know that's really sad yeah. but it's a one-liner and we move on you know yeah, and he's um he's also asking anybody who'll listen to go for a drink with him. Like he when he's on the train, he asks this mum for a to go for a drink mainly because he quite likes the look of her, and she turns him down. But even when he's in the taxi, he asks the taxi driver if he wants to go for a drink as well, and the taxi driver's like, "No, I can't do that, mate." Uh, <laughs> but there is there's a real sadness to it. That yeah. reminded me actually of um. Do you remember when we we went? Uh, I was on this train back from Leeds. I don't know if you if you you were there. We're on this we're on this train back from Leeds one, one uh, evening, and it was like a late train back. And the right. the, the bloke on the ta- normally the bloke on the loudspeaker, the ticket inspector, would just say the next stop is whatever, yeah, and then leave. But he just kept talking on the on the on the loudspeaker, and he's saying like, uh, "This train is so many carriages. It was built in this time, and it's a." <laughs> And he, he just wouldn't shut up. And at the end, he was like, this is the final stop for tonight. And uh hope you've enjoyed travelling with us. Thanks very much for getting the train. And all the only thing he didn't say, which I was waiting for, was, uh, so if anyone fancies a pint, I'm going to be in the railway arms. <laughs> oh, man. I, <laughs> We're there all night. So, uh, that's amazing. Fancy turning up. I was I was not there for that. I definitely would have remembered such a such an exhaustive breakdown of the uh, <laughs> the, the train experience as I was experiencing it back from Leeds. To be honest with you, if that had happened to me, I probably would have gone up to the front and offered him a drink anyway because that train journey is so fucking awful that anybody relieving it in any way is due a pint. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's but, true. But I know what you mean. You know, there's that kind of weird functional isolation kind of thing that Holden's definitely experiencing here. Yeah. When he gets to the hotel, uh, this bellboy, we say bellboy, he's a 65-year-old bloke, um, carries his bags up to his room. And again, there's this, similar to when he was sat with his teacher, there's this low sense of horror about how badly things can turn out, how badly things can turn out for you when you're older. Mm. Um, because Holden thinks this is the sort of, he says it's the, he says, he says it quite in his typical, quite funny way. He says the bellboy was even more depressing than the room was. Uh, but it's this thought now, of... that, God. as a line, that is almost as good as a sort of Philip Marlowe mystery sort of thing. Like, the bellboy was almost as depressing as the room was. I lit a cigarette. I put out a cigarette. You know. Yeah. Like, that's, same- that's proper film noir, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Roshark actually. Fifteen a.m. Four a.m. I've seen the bellboys and I've seen the dirty rooms of this city and I hold them completely in contempt. They'll come to me and they'll say, "Fancy a pint?" and I'll look down and answer, "No." That's awesome. Yeah. That's a reference to our, our Watchmen graphic novel uh, coverage. If you want to go back and read more, uh, listen to that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he's 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 in his room, holding. He looks out of the window, and what does he see? Funky stuff going on across the oh, across the way some, in the other hotel. Some rooms. shit goes down. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> I absolutely loved this. Yeah, there's one dude who seems to be cross dressing and prancing around in front of the mirror. Uh, in the room, in one of the rooms nearby, there's another, there's a couple who seem to be sort of, <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. They seem to be squirting 
uh, some liquid, probably martini or some kind of alcohol, into each other's mouths and back and forth again. <laughs> Which that's, sounds horrific. Yeah, that's well, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not judging, I'm not judging, but yeah, yeah that's weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, actually, like this, th- th- for some reason, this moment was one which I like Holden's kind of response to this was one where I was like oh I kind of I kind of recognize that because I um not actually seeing somebody cross-dress and prance around in front of the mirror or indeed share a single martini with their drinking partner in quite a terminal way of, sh- of uh, saving money <laughs> but um uh I went on a on an exchange to France when I was 15 I went by myself it wasn't a school thing it was a it was a um to a friend of the family and mm. um, and so I, when I was fifteen, I just sort of went there by myself and kind of got myself there and got myself back again. And even though that journey is quite sim, you know, it was just going to France, like it was get to the airport, fly on a plane, get on a bus, sort of thing. Um, it was that whole experience of just kind of being out and moving around in the world by myself was quite was quite kind of intriguing. And as I look back, I saw some things on that journey which were just really weird, but I didn't know that they were really weird. Because mm. I hadn't been out and about enough, um, and so there is there is a bit in this th- this particular experience for Holden. I was like, kind of maybe he's looking at it and being like, God, so this is what happens, right? So you leave school, you get thrown out of school, and then you grow up, and then you start wearing women's clothing and dance around in front of the mirror, and or. <laughs> share a single martini for an entire evening in a bedroom with a, a, a partner of the opposite or complementary gender. And then you become a 65-year-old bellboy. And, like, <laughs> I, I don't really blame him for kind of feeling a little bit, you know, really, really bleakly digging on the absurdism of what he's seeing if it's all supposed to be kind of emblematic instead of just, well, people are weird, go figure, you know? Yeah. Um, he wants a bit of company. And he decides to call this woman called Faith Cavendish, who one of his, uh, someone, someone's given her, given him her number. This guy who used to go to Princeton, uh, saying that she's an ex stripper and she likes to, she's a party girl, basically. And he, he thinks, oh, nice one. I'll, I might give her a call. He rings her up in the middle of the night again. <laughs> just, just no sense of empathy. Extraordinarily poorly judged booty call, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, and it's funny because she's, she's really abrupt at the start. Yeah. And then as soon as he mentions Princeton, as in fairly, a very expensive, exclusive American university, uh, she warms up straight she's away. Keen. She's Princeton, yeah. you say. Interesting. Yes, of course. Yeah. It's no longer incredibly rude that you called me at four in the morning asking me if I wanted to go out and get a drink. No, no. Yeah. Perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> and and his, his fantastic ability to lie helps him out here. And he very almost gets a date, but um, but he says, it's got to be tonight or nothing. And she says, oh, I can only do tomorrow. And he leaves it at that. And he sort of hangs up and kicks himself for it. Uh Bit yeah. strange, bit of a strange episode altogether. That very weird, isn't it? It's a weird twilighty kind of feel to this to this evening in the hotel. Hmm. Yeah, I get the I get the feeling in general, in the school included, everything we've seen so far. He he seems to be living in a very and maybe just because of the way he narrates it, but a really bleak and cold and kind of frightening world. And maybe that's that's how. Yeah. Some teenagers see the world as they're mm. growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it could very well be. 
Sorry. But uh, yeah, everything seems either sad, uh, pathetic, or threatening. There's not a lot of things to get excited about, is there? That's a very good summary, actually, I think, of how of how he's experiencing the world. And Mm. yeah, I mean, in that context, I suppose you would be quite sort of bleakly angry, wouldn't you? If that's what you thought the world was. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose the the, the only thing that isn't that, I think everything that is unknown to him or is new to him seems like that. And the things that he likes... Uh, we do, there are a few things he likes him. It's his family and past people who he's got, and Jane basically, who yeah. he's got to know quite well. Uh, and chapter ten, we find a bit more about another member of his family. We, it's basically we didn't talk about this before, but there's, he's got two brothers. Well, he had two brothers. One was this guy called is this guy called DB, who has moved to California to be a writer. Uh, and it's quite funny that he thinks he's a great. He, he obviously. Holden thinks that his brother's a fantastic writer, but he he describes twice as uh, Holden as DB's decision to go over to California to be a writer as prostituting himself, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah, which is where I sort of I have a little bit start to have a little bit less patience because if, if that's if that's JD Salinger talking about the idea of you know working in the movies as being prostitution and kind of not really making a great argument for literature as a form with this particular book, you know, if you're this alienated the rest of it. So, fuck yeah. yeah, I'll go and watch the movies. I also think uh, Jerry Salinger was quite keen to get this turned into a film as well, from what I remember. So, yeah. Oh, was it? If it's his voice, if it's his voice uh, talking, yeah. Uh, right. and it, it came across to me as uh, something Holden's probably heard someone else say and thought that was quite a cool thing to say I, he doesn't seem to think very that he never expands on why that is and I doubt that if you if you were to sit down with the character and push him on it and say why do you think that he'd have a great deal to say it just sounds like something that sounds cool and rebellious so he just repeats it a few times <laughs> yeah yeah and you know well he's a teenager isn't he I suppose yeah and obviously we've heard about Ali who's the guy, who's the brother who died and there's also this young sister called Phoebe who he really likes she's only 10 mm. and um again he he's he's very fond of her he feels quite close to his siblings mm. and he also says that he's the, he feels he's the only child in the family who's dumb uh all the others are really bright and clever mm. and and again this is this is very different to, to how he... Again, I got a sense of slipping past the shield and seeing a bit of warmth here and and just genuine... And him being genuine, that he thinks that... Uh, he thinks a lot of his family and at the same time, especially his, his siblings, and at the same time doesn't feel like he measures up to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's, it's all weird because, you know, you've been making a fairly good argument so far for him being a kind of quite emotionally kind of removed or cauterized in a sense kind of character. Um, mm. But then, and, you know, perhaps again, this is my this is my kind of narrative laziness, but I kind of expect that to come from the family. But no, he actually has quite warm, unabashedly warm feelings towards his family and kind of and expresses them that way um Mm. so i'm still really confused (laughs) you know he's he's not a kind of unfeeling automaton but he acts like one an awful lot of the time uh yeah Mm. just odd anyway yeah again that's but i i would say again it's the it's the it's who he's it's the face he's trying to give the reader and the rest of the world and what he is 
mm. and the two the difference between the two. Mm. Um, he goes down. He goes down to the bar, tries to tries and fails to order a drink. <laughs> it's quite funny. He, he sort of he orders it quickly because he. It, I I really empathise with this because I'm sure we've both been in the situation where you're too young to have a drink and you're trying to get in either get in a nightclub when you're underage or order a drink at the bar when you're underage. <laughs> and he says you've got to say it quickly or else they're on to you. So he says it really quickly. You can almost imagine him garbling it, <laughs> uh, his, his drinks order. And, and the waiter's like, uh, how old are you? Got the and then he tries, <laughs> and then he tries to face it down, which is the go-to second option. He's it like, is. I can't believe that you're questioning how old I am. And, <laughs> and when that fails, he orders a Coke and then does the, the final desperate plea, which again, I'm sure it's quite familiar, is just the, oh, come on. Just put a bit of rum <laughs> Give in me it. a break. Stick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I love those, the, the, the three stages of trying to order a drink when you're um, when you're that age. Pretty much is well summed up there. One is just try and pass it off, say it quickly, hope that you get away with it. Two is just try and front it up and just get them be so shocked that they think they've made a mistake. And three... Just, just beg, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I sympathise. I sympathise with that entire process, absolutely, <laughs> and top to bottom. Yeah, I get the feeling. Imagine actually, the... also imagine the horror of being American and being seventeen and knowing that you've got four years left of this. At least when you're seventeen in the UK, you're like counting down the months, the weeks. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. in America, you have to be twenty-one. Bananas. Yeah. Anyway, so he starts hitting on this trio of girls in the bar um, who he considers one of them is quite attractive and the other two are really ugly, uh, is his opinion of them uh, he dances with one of them basically the the girls they're, they're obviously considerably older than him they're sort of early 20s, these women and they think he's a bit of a sad case and obviously very young, they realise he's really young and but they still, da- you know, just kind of not just to be nice, but as something to do, I suppose. Hmm. They dance with him, yeah, uh, laughing at him all the time as well. Yeah, uh, he dances with the girl he actually finds quite attractive, and she sort of <laughs> just almost ignores him all the way through it. Yeah, but she's looking around for someone more interesting to come in through the door. Yeah. I um, d- I love how he deals with that though, because he just goes, oh, "I've seen Gary Cooper over there." Like this. <laughs> He's like, he's so, he's so absolutely like taking none of her shit. Like he's dancing. She's having none of it. Oh, sorry. That's Brad Pitt over there. Oh, you missed him. Yeah. He was in here though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely saw him. Yeah. That, that, that's when he's, he's dancing with the, uh, the girl called Marty, isn't it? And he says, he says old Marty was like dragging the Statue of Liberty around the floor. <laughs> She's rubbish. <laughs> and it, it's great because he says, look, there's Gary Cooper. And she looks around and he goes, oh, you must have just missed him. And she's all right. And then she goes back, sits down with the rest of the girls. And then she says to the girls, yeah, I just got a glance at Gary Cooper. <laughs> and he loves it. It's like, brilliant, the lie's spreading. <laughs> um, I thought it was quite interesting that he he's, he's obviously not old enough to buy a drink for himself and he's not allowed to. But um, <laughs> they've not got any, neither the staff nor these, these women who are uh, laughing at him have any problem with letting him order a load of drinks for the girls and then leaving him with the bill when uh, when it's finished. Yeah. And I suppose this is this is how this is how it, these you know the world worked and and 
especially this part of the world, going to a bar, worked at this time. You know, if you're a man, you, you you got the chance to sit down and speak to a couple of women if you bought them drinks all night. Yeah. And you get the feeling that Holden's just taking his first steps into that world. Yeah. And it's just, you really sense his inexperience, don't you? Even though he, he is doing it and he's, he, he's, you know, vaguely aware of how the system works, he's just entirely new to it. And he ends up basically mm. getting laughed at for an hour to, uh, and then saddled with a 13 quid bill which is quite a lot of money for this time (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely but i mean but there's there's a bit here and then there's a bit when he's uh before when he's back in his room where he's this is why he's fundamentally a sympathetic character to me is that unlike everybody else in the in the novel he's not about to force himself on women or claim that he's bought them with a drink you know Mm. um but as you say, perhaps he's taken his first steps towards, you know, seeing that as his right, you know, and that kind of entitlement. But he doesn't have it at the moment, and that's a good thing. Hmm. Chapter 11, so he's, he's left alone again, and he gets back to thinking about Jane. You really get this sense of a, an obsession with this with this girl, don't you? Yeah. And uh, he thinks about how they became quite close because uh, they lived next door and they they went golfing together and played uh, checkers, which is, if you're in England, it's drafts together. And um, (laughs) he he speaks to her very affectionately, but also um, he kind of accepts she's not the most attractive girl in the world. He says she's... (laughs) He says she's always got a mouth slightly open, and I think that's really strange. This girl with a perpetually open mouth <laughs> at any time. <laughs> Maybe when she's just sort of sitting reading with her mouth open. <laughs> odd. Um, it's enough to make you want to carry around like like uh, like ping pong balls or something, see if you can get one to just sort of stick in there. <laughs> Jane seems to have this uh, very uh, painful and creepy-ish relationship with her father, because he stumbles out onto the porch when they're playing drafts one day and says, you know, if he, he asks her a question and she ignores him and he stumbles off mm. and she starts crying. Yeah. And, yeah, he, uh, Holden, sort of comforts her and he ends up, it's kind of strange, sort of kissing her all over her face but not on her lips because she won't let him. Um, and it's it was just, it felt both awkward and quite sweet but you weren't sure which way, you know, it was both at the same time. Yeah. And I thought it was just quite an interesting scene. Yeah, and weird. And 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 at this point, like, weird is all very well, but at this point, there's so many different moving parts I'm trying to hold in my head that I was like, yeah. I don't really know what to make out of this, and I don't really know whether I have the 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 raw materials to even approach an attempt. So I, I mm. kind of, I read it, and I was like, huh, and then move past it. And I found myself doing that actually more and more in this little bit of the book. Stuff would happen. I'd look at it and be like, ah, oh, I don't really know what to make of that. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. You know, I don't have it. There's no handles on it. Like I say, slippery yeah. and cold are the two words I would use to describe the, the sort of theme of the book yeah. at this point. I mean, there's a sense that these two are quite close because he talks about how they used to go to the movies and like hold hands uh, all the time. And once she put a sort of hand on the back of his neck as they were watching a film and he thought it was great. And yeah. you get that feeling of how you really do in this chapter appreciate how he's pretty much in love with this girl. Mm. And, um, or whatever passes for this, you know, love at this age. 
and uh yeah it's and again it sort of just builds on that reason why uh, helps you understand why a he punched the strad in the face <laughs> <early> <laughs> on, and and why this this uh sort of jane's was the whole reason for sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back and the and the the, the lighting the touch paper that made him leave Mm. Uh, and it's all tied up with that. Yeah, yeah. And this this chapter ends with a him taking a taxi to this place called Ernie's, which is this this pianist who's uh, who sort of runs a bar, and he's been to a couple of times before with his brother, and he thinks it's a good place to go on to a uh, basically, I suppose, just keep moving and keep doing something, so he doesn't just have to spend too much time alone with his thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's very clearly what he's aiming for, isn't it? Mm. You know, he's a busy guy. He's, he likes to keep busy. He likes to keep busy to keep out the sound of his howling teenage angst. Exactly. <laughs> uh, next week, we're going to read up until chapter 21. So right, it's another nice big chunk of the book, because we're going to do this in three parts, Catcher in the Rye. Uh, so that would be the sort of the big middle chunk of the book is next week. So if you're reading along with us, read from chapter 12, which is what we're up to now, as far as chapter 21. Okay, Dave, I'm, I'm almost frightened to ask, but opening thoughts on the book. <laughs> like I say, I am I'm determined to give it a fair crack of the whip. And again, like I wouldn't I don't think I'd be taking it to task so much if it wasn't if it wasn't so acclaimed a novel. You know, it's supposed to be one of the great novels of the twentieth century. And so I'm kind of I'm struggling to connect uh, with this character, but I've got to say that your perspective on it has helped me kind of engage with him a little bit more and see him as a little bit more rounded. But I, at the moment, I'm still standing by the fact that it took somebody else to do that for me, and that that is a fundamental problem with the book. They, there's mm-hmm. no there's no handles on it. There's no ways to engage. There's no ways to get in. And and I think that's I think if you write a work of literary genius, which you can't, which people can't access, you haven't written a work of literary genius. Uh, clearly, mm. I am in the minority in terms of not really being able to access the book and the character at this point, and literally millions of people disagree with me. Um, but I, I stand by that. For me, I, I find it quite. I'm finding Holden as a character. It's difficult to know why I should turn the page. Um, all of that said. J.D. Salinger is, is, you know, is acclaimed for a reason. And so I'm going to stick with it because, you know, I think things like this can kind of come off. Um, mm. and, and I'm waiting to see it happen. Well, we've got two thirds of the book to go for it to to, wa- to warm you up, I suppose. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I actually quite like it and I'm very interested in, in Holden. I do, I do like the character and, um, I, I suppose I'm not desperate to find out what happens. It's not one of those page turners where you're wondering what on earth is going to happen next. Mm. But at the same time, there's, there's enough there for me to want to find out a bit more about how he's going to develop and whether we're going to see any difference in him. And mm. what's going to win out? Is it this uh, this need to, to, to give this impression of not really caring about anything to the world? Or are we finally going to see more and more of this, I suppose, the real character come through? So... We shall see. Yeah. But uh, yeah, till next time, uh, grit your teeth, Dave. You've got to get through about 80 pages. <laughs> do, no, do, do you know what? Do you know what? I've done 
the third the third episode of the Night Circus where I still wasn't sure why Bailey was in the book at all, right? <laughs> if I've done that, I can do anything. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you haven't already, go back and listen to it, even if you've never read the book. Uh, the four part series of the Night Circus because uh, we did we did wrestle with that slightly. <laughs> I, we liked it, but there were yeah, there were problems. Uh, yeah, I don't talk about that enough, really. For all that I thought that Bailey was a pain in the ass as a character, um, <laughs> uh, but the rest of the book I thought was incredibly you know rich and evoked things beautifully and the rest of it. But yeah, like I say, if I can cope with Bailey, I can cope with Holden Caulfield. <laughs> so I'm I'm in okay. I'm in. <laughs> Well, until next week. Until next uh, week, enjoy, man. Enjoy the rest of the book. And, uh, <laughs> we'll see you then. Layers. Layers.